Bo. 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 Joaquin. 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 Checking out the new uh, ASMR mic functions. Yeah. Do you think River Phoenix is just like looking down Joaquin. on this movie being like, good job, bro? I don't know if anybody is looking down on this movie going, good job, bro. But <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, River Phoenix seemed like such a different person than, yeah. than Joaquin. Yeah, Joaquin's an artist. No way to know. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Movie Blues Podcast. Uh, as always, I am Dan Lyons. Dan Enden. And uh, this is a podcast in which two sad Jewish people whose sadness fluctuates as much as their weight uh, <laughs> get together in a little basement and talk about movies. Today, it's we're a good sized basement. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a finished basement. Please don't picture like the basement that I'm sure you're picturing. Yeah, it's not like the Blair Witch. <laughs> That's what my basement's like. One day I am going to come down here though, and Dan is going to be standing in the corner, just facing the wall. <laughs> I'm going to start screaming. Yeah. My my basement is exactly like that basement. And speaking of um, spooky things that seem to come out of nowhere, today we watched another Ari Aster movie. Um, that was a hot transition. Sorry, it's really early in the morning. I haven't had my scotch yet. <laughs> and um, Do you want me to crush up your clonopin and mix it, mix your little morning treat up for you? Yeah. Will you make my little morning julep for me, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> That's Dan's protein smoothie. Hell yeah. Fatality. Um, so today we're going to do a movie that is not only part of sequel season because we had done Midsommar on the podcast, but I would say it's also like kind of a big moment in the podcast uh, thematically and conceptually because we are coming against a movie here. Yes, homo, that um, is been a, a long time coming. <laughs> Dan, can you take it from here? <laughs> um, I think... Uh, We've yeah. been building up to this one for a very long time. This is a hotly contested director. Yeah, I mean, with the exception of uh, Book of Henry, which obviously that was going to be a thing, um, Midsommar sure. was like the first thing on the podcast that we had like a hot disagreement over. Right. And um, I think for the past year, which is the window at which it took me to kind of see this movie, uh, maybe it came out like seven or eight months ago at this point. Not sure. But over that period of time. I think fewer. I think it was out like four months ago. Four months ago? I think I think it was recently. Well, whenever it came out, it bombed instantly. And yeah. It was pulled from theaters within like two weeks, basically. Um, Thanks, Marvel. And since then. <laughs> no, Mar really, no. Marvel did this. Thank you, Marvel. <laughs> Um, ever since then, I've kind of assumed that this was going to be a pretty bad movie because most of the people that I know who even like Ari Aster had like really polarized reactions to this film. Um, and there is a history of, I think, polarized reactions to Ari's work on this podcast. So very concerned about today's moratorium um yeah the moratorium is the concept in which we do not speak to each other we try to not speak to each other about our actual opinions and takes on yeah. the movies that we're reviewing we'll, we'll send like in real time like reactions yeah. you know like emotional reactions to things but it's like along the lines of like a gif being like what the fuck like there's no like we i don't know how dan feels about this movie i've been a little anxious about it 
I've had to hide uh, my thoughts on it for a very long yeah. time too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I guess, I mean, you know, it's polarizing as far as Midsommar because I didn't like it when I first saw it. You loved it when you first saw it, and then I rewatched it to try to like in you know take into context, you know, going into it without expectations. You rewatched it when? Uh, I don't know, like a year ago. Director's cut or regular? No, I watched the regular one. Okay. Um, because also I think you're misstating the history of of my thoughts towards Midsommar a little bit, but let's we'll come back to that in a bit. You gave it an eight when we did it for the show. Yeah, but. I guess we'll just get right into it. But I, 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 I would say that with Midsommar, well, there's an interesting thing with all of uh, Ari's movies so far for me, which is that not a single one of them have I walked away from and been like, that was incredible, 10 out of 10. That has not happened yet. I saw Hereditary in theaters by myself. I don't know what the situation was that Rachel wasn't around, but I... Went and saw it by myself, and the first half of Hereditary, I wasn't vibing yeah. with. I didn't. I thought we were doing just kind of like an art house version of the Spooky Kid parable. Mm-hmm. I really didn't expect anything to subvert that narrative for me. We all know what happens at the midpoint of that film. I'm not going to spoil it. There's no point in spoiling it. But if you haven't seen Hereditary, why are you even listening to this episode? Please go watch Hereditary. What are you doing? Um, that is a movie that I had to think about and I had to go home and be like, like either that was a exceptional experience or like I'm, I'm sort of gaslighting myself into thinking it was. And then I looked online. I got to call that the Wes Anderson paradox. Well, no, this, <laughs> this, this, I'm actually going to uh, break down a real uh, hidden paradox that we've never really gotten to on this show because this is this today's film is Afraid is a surrealist movie. Whether it's successful or not is not the point. It's it's an attempt at surrealism. And we don't, in this podcast, ever do surrealist movies. But we have talked about some of the, the more white-bred surrealist filmmakers like David Lynch and been pretty down on things like that. Yeah, but we've also been very, I mean, most fucking pretentious sentence ever. But we've been very high on Fellini. We've been high on Fellini. <laughs> I will say that, but what what we're not high on in this podcast... masturbation in a movie form. Masturbation in movie form, A. But also, I think I've made it clear a few times on this podcast, especially from in film school having to take Mulholland Drive apart for an entire semester, that I find movies that do not have proper explanation for their goings-on to be satisfying, and I can't rectify that part of my body to enjoy those things. What I have found in my older years of movie watching with challenging films, whether they are surrealist, whether they are narratively dysfunctional is that challenging films, a, I have to watch twice. There's absolutely no world where I can absorb something correctly the first time. And at the same time, understand its themes and enjoy it. For example, Charlie Kaufman work of Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. His directorial works, Synecdoche, New York, and I'm thinking of ending things. I'm thinking of ending things. I believe things. that word is... Uh, Synecdoche. Sc- 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 Which, by I'm, the way, I just got the new 4K disc of. Yeah, fan- fantastic. fantastic. Sure. Love Charlie Kaufman. I'm thinking of ending things is the movie 
that I want to bring up because that is a movie that I would argue is extremely difficult to enjoy on first watch. Extremely. I liked it quite a bit. It was enormously alienating for me because one part of my brain is trying to figure out what is going on in a more literal sense, which is not what I should be doing, but it's where my brain goes to. And the other part of my brain is sorting themes and ideas and trying to figure out what's abstract, what's not, what's literal. It's it's too much for me on a single watch to walk away from challenging movies and be like, uh, I can give you a really straight up description of how I felt about that. I can tell you how I felt about Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness because it's a children's movie. Right. Um, but movies like Bo is Afraid, regardless of their quality, I'm not even saying whether or not I liked it yet. I'm saying that I finished Bo is Afraid and I texted you right out and I was like, I I'm going to have to rewatch this movie and just however painful that experience may be because it's, you know, we're podcasting on Saturday and it was like Monday or Tuesday, I think at this point. But like, I just don't, I guess I'm not as smart as a person who can maybe like yourself sit and watch. I'm thinking of ending things and figure out what is actually happening in that movie and be done with it and being like, I don't need to like revisit that to fully form my ideas about it. I, I, I need to. Um, I, I mean, I don't know that that's necessarily how I am because there are plenty of quote unquote like classic surrealist films that I can't jive with at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and same. Generally, I mean, we talked about it a lot on the Midsommar episode is that like when you approach these movies, you have to approach them as hard as you can be and as successful as you can be with knowing that you need to subvert your own expectations and just push them aside and kind of try to just take in it's more about like the vibe and the feeling and you know so midsummer when i got you know i went i loved hereditary i went into midsummer see i saw it at midnight in a theater yeah. like ready to see the sequel to hereditary mm-hmm. and it very much was not that and you made the valid point that like nothing that was going to happen in that movie was not going to leave me feeling off put by it because i went in expecting something so different and sat through two and a half hours of that so I needed to rewatch it. Sure. And I hated it just as much a second time. Absolutely hated it. Wild. <laughs> like that is so wild. Like really <laughs> bad movie. I think his fucking third acts are just ridiculous pacing wise. Uh-huh. Um and I it felt like I was like, okay, so now the end is going to be just like hereditary. Just like he has this vibe. Mhm. And I I came away from that being like, all right, well, uh, you know, those two... I don't know. I don't think I'm a fan of Ari Aster. I mean, I'm a fan of one movie he made, but like the amount that I disliked Midsommar. And it's like it's, it's not so like crazy. I had like palpable hatred for it. It was just like I found it so mids and people were just going ape shit over it. I was just like, uh, it did absolutely nothing for me, but that's fine. Like I still can recognize and the reason like this movie I wasn't I was not dreading watching at all. I was looking forward to it because I'm just like mm. even if I don't like him mm-hmm. which remains to be determined after we review this movie mm-hmm. um i am all on board for like anyone who's going out on a limb to make something different and sure. like getting enough traction that like this you know bo's afraid was a24's most mm-hmm. expensive film i've had a very bad streak with a24 movies i haven't really liked any of the ones you've suggested to me i didn't really like every thing everywhere all at once all that much mm-hmm. um the only thing that i've loved that they i've seen of them recently is marcel the shell which like you don't really like no and i mean again and i i'm only repeating it because i said it off mic but i i enjoyed it but it 
I, 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 I just struggle with children's entertainment. Mm-hmm. Like it just doesn't, it wasn't smart enough for me to like feel like it was anything other than something I would show a child. It's so. really become like a comfort movie for like in like our household. Like when people come over, we'll throw that on. I watched it on a plane the first time. Um, we Cute. watched it twice after that. Like I did you ever watch Beef? No, you never did that. You never finished that. Was that the Ali Wong movie? Yeah. To the no, show. I didn't finish it. That's yeah, the shame. show. Yeah. I That's watched like two episodes. That was fantastic. I was watching it and I was like, this is uh this is fine. I like I struggle with Ali Wong in general. Mm. Um but I I was like, okay, it feels super A twenty four y. Like mm-hmm. I always struggle when I feel like a studio is like making things like all feel kind of the same. Um, did A24 do Color Ass Space? No. Okay, cool. Hated that. Love that movie. Um, One of the better uh, Lovecraft adaptations. Either way, adaptations. the point is... Can you please go on airplane mode? I'm on airplane mode. What was that sound? Oh, that's my computer? That's yours. That's your shit. Mm. All right. Um, I... It does it get on. I... So, like, I'm not an A24 fan at all, but, like, sure. I'm pumped they exist. You know, they're doing great yeah. shit for physical media. Like, I support them as a company. Like, when I see a company doing all these things, it's not like everything where I'm so prone to shit on things that people love, like Marvel. Mm-hmm. When I see people in the group, like, talking about A24, like, I just don't participate because I'm like, good. Like, Ari Aster is good for movies. As far as what I want film as, like, a societal, uh, like, art umbrella to be, Ari Aster is doing more for that goal than most other filmmakers sure like i want people how many times have we sat at the end of this podcast being like i just want someone to fucking take a risk with a movie like well yeah i mean and like they're gonna fail sometimes but like sure back in the day you had enough auteurs given the leeway to take enough risks that like every now and then you end up with a fucking easy rider like yeah, yeah no i agree and i to go back to what i was saying um originally like hereditary kind of mixed experience that opened up and just blew my mind second third time around yeah. and i didn't love hereditary the first time but yeah the second time i watched it was during lockdown on fucking netflix loved it right loved it one thing that um ari aster does that i don't care what art house he's working for or production company or what his films are like or what he's trying to do what is important to me about his work is that it's challenging that it takes a lot of digestion to decide whether you like or hate it in this instance with Midsommar. Midsommar I saw and instantly walked out and was like, that was not as good as Hereditary. That's my brain. That's where your brain went. That's where my brain went. I was like, where is Hereditary to? And that is a a form and function of any uh, auteur swinging the door open as hard as Ari Aster did with Hereditary. It's what happened with M. Night Shyamalan. People were like, Mm -hmm. why is Unbreakable? But it's, it was like, it's also like, well, you know, the more uh, keys to the kingdom that you give somebody with a creative mind, the more dangerous that becomes in both directions. For you, sure. You can make a better movie, but you can also make worse movies consistently on and on and forever. Um, and you can just start like buying into your own shit and really like jerking the parts yeah, of your well, aesthetic that's, up. That's, and that's like go back to the Asteroid City. episode, Right. That's why. So we were talking. We is, talked about that a lot with Wes Anderson. And it's just like with Midsommar. I if you listen to the episode where we were reviewing it, I'm no every topic I just go back to. I'm like, this movie could have been 45 minutes shorter. This dude is just jerking off his own shots, and like my like Wes Anderson alarm bells were bells were ringing. I was just like, he's doing the thing. It's only a second movie, and he's already doing the thing where he made a pretty shot, and he's making it go for fucking four minutes, even though it needs to be 30 seconds. I can't do it. I can't do it. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, again, 
you have you have some kind of preoccupation with the filming of Midsommar uh, and all sorts of things with Midsommar that I do not understand, do not vibe with. Every time I've watched that movie since, it gets better and better and better. And I hate better. it. It is loaded with what I was going to say is my favorite aspect of Ari, Aster, Ari Aster's filmmaking, which is just hidden detail that opens up the story only on repeat viewings, only on non-passive viewing. Yeah, I mean, the man the man um, cares about his mise-en-scene. There is so much to kind of drink in throughout all three of his movies, whether you like them or not. And it's not even a, a question of subjectivity. There are things presented in Bo is Afraid. There are things presented in Hereditary, especially, that are meant to not be understandable the first time around. You are shown things in both of those films, whether it's the uh, logo of payment on a telephone pole as the car drives by to the party that aren't even like Chekhov's gun. It's Chekhov's Jew. You know, just have a mute button on your keyboard. Cool, 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 cool. Twenty They aren't really like Chekhov's gun. Chekhov's gun is like you're shown something that you're like, oh well, that's clearly going to be reincorporated. Ari Aster's putting things in his movies, and it's also not MacGuffins. Right? No, sure. I mean, these are sometimes just visual flourishes, sometimes just production work. Details that he's putting in there. There's a care going on that and whether you vibe with his narrative abilities or his cinematography or blah, 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 because I mean, I have problems with that, too. I think narratively, all three of his movies have weird stretches, moments and um, vibes that aren't meant to be digested in a film uh, as an enjoyable viewing. I would even say that Bo is afraid, especially there are parts and sections in Bo is Afraid where Ari Aster does not care about the audience's feelings. It's just like, I want to do what I'm going to do here because I want to do it and you're going to have to fucking suffer through it. And and that's like a vibe that doesn't work as a theater watch for me. Yeah, yeah <laughs> That's a vibe sure. that doesn't work as like a 9, p- 9 p.m. I'm stoned and exhausted after work view for me. And just like Charlie Kaufman, I think he isn't presupposed i don't want to keep comparing him to charlie kaufman because i i just think that charlie kaufman is so much more seasoned and so much more of a genius than ari maybe ari in 10 or 15 years can put out work as restrained yet bonkers as charlie kaufman but charlie kaufman had so many years of writing scripts Mm -hmm. and understanding how surrealism could even work in a mainstream audience charlie kaufman has to have like one of the highest like hit rates to me Maybe to to you, yeah. that that's good. But like, I don't mean hit in terms rates of like popularity. Yeah. I mean in terms of like what percentage what of works the things for he's you. written, sure. I think are just fucking like above average as fuck. Wait, yeah. Well, I would say just special. The word is just like you yeah. see them and you're just like that was special. Dude, that adaptation, was something, something special. So, dude, every single time, the first time I saw adaptation was middle school, and since the first time I saw it, every time in my life that I watch anything with voiceover narration i picture the scene in adaptation where he's in the fucking writing class and the Mm -hmm. teacher's like and god help me if you put voiceover narration in your story Mm -hmm. and 
I'm so opposed to it because of that movie. Yeah, me too. A hundred percent. Well, I have this like pervading idea in my mind that anytime I hear it, I'm like, is this going to service the story? Right. Just like um, there's a film critic that I watch who like 10 years ago, I watched one of his uh, videos where he was like doing this whole thing on objectivity and all these different very basic like critique concepts. And um, he was saying that. Um, what were you just saying? Just... Voice over narration. Oh, um like voiceover narration, he was saying that flashbacks um, that you absolutely positively do not put a flashback in something unless it's informing the current situation of what you're watching. And that is something, I mean, yes, that's very obvious, but something like that is stuck in my mind that like everything I watch that has flashbacks, I always come back to and I'm like, was that effectively used? Right. And then I think, what is the word effective? Where did I get this notion? It's like someone else's film critique yeah, analysis. Sure. Um, but it is interesting. I have thought that for many years. Anytime you hear a voiceover. Well, then there's also the Blade Runner thing. I feel like what happened with Blade Runner put a stigma on voiceover forever, where they were like, Blade Runner was made worse by explanation. Yeah. And that was like a huge deal just in cinema culture uh, forever. I mean, there's still recutting that fucking movie yeah. for some reason. Well, that's um, why I have to give it to Ari, regardless if I'm liking the movies or not, because in con- in contrast with, like, Asteroid City or any of Wes Anderson's last several pictures, like, mm-hmm. Bo is afraid very easily could have had someone just hop on the screen to be like, and this is the story of Bo going to the fucking house, like, yeah. and just, like, shoving information down your throat, like... No, Ari, <laughs> Ari know, Ari's like, I'm gonna throw this out there, and I don't give a fuck... This movie did if not come. If you understand it, well, with, if you want to understand it, watch it more. If not, like sure. that's fine. This movie did not come with instructions. Yeah, Asteroid City was literally like, "This is a picture about how you're not supposed to understand the movie, and that's okay. Is sure. everybody okay <laughs> with that? This is totally not me seeking your approval." Um, to 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 put a final pin in it, and then we're gonna review the actual movie. I would say that I am the opposite of Dan in in many ways with my viewing predilections and movies that I'm interested in and I everything that he said in his opening introduction just invert for me I love A24 I think they've added some of the most valuable movies to the lexicon of popular cinema in the past 10 years again and again and again I would probably say that every year you could attribute one to three A24 productions as the best three movies of the year but be, like being, I don't doubt that. I just I haven't the, been seeing new movies that I think are any good. <clears throat> being, That's why I'm saying I respect them. Being made in the United States, especially um, uh, Ari's the golden boy, but there are so many other people that are working for A24 who I think are just geniuses. Um, I I think that anyone, and this like dips into some of the people in the rental zone. I think that anyone that. Uh, is negatively bashing A24 as either a concept, a production house, or or their work. Bashing it is is high on their own farts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll make fun, it's, I'll make fun it's of idiotic. Them. I'll make fun of them, but I'll make fun of anything. Like, sure, I, I would if I had to guess. Like, you know, I'm not watching a lot of current movies. Right. If at the end of any given year, you told me the three of the best movies that came out this year came out from May 24, I'd be like, that makes sense. They're the only, one of the right. only ones making fucking movies. They also just because make... I haven't enjoyed them doesn't mean I'm like, these are bad. I'm, they're just not my vibe, typically. They also make um, fantastic TV shows and documentaries. The Deepest Breath, their recent documentary on Netflix, I thought was absolutely horrifying and amazing. What is that about? Uh, it's about uh, the top in the world uh, free divers. Oh, they made that? Yeah, I started watching that, and and 
that isn't just a tragedy of a documentary to get through and it is just hair raising to think about just the whole concept of free diving is so fucking insane yeah um, uh so things like that i really appreciate from them and i also loved beef 10 out of 10 one of the best like series i've seen in a very long time um loved um euphoria loved the idol um love what they do when it comes to like white trashy shitty pop culture cinema as well things like spring breakers and the idol like are so easy for someone with such a basic read of media to say is either stupid or bad or uh bad for culture or highlighting the wrong things in the world but if you watch movies like red rocket and the florida project i mean these are some of the best movies i've ever seen come out of this country and they made red rocket yeah all right red Um, rocket was really great these are like movies that remind me of things like gummo of things like that have an authenticity to them that you're not seeing anywhere else and people who go around actively bashing that are just being hipsters or in on their own bullshit and i think that people who don't like hereditary or midsommar and think that ari aster is a hack have a basis in reality. I understand he's a polarizing figure. I understand I don't, I don't his think films are polarizing. Any by which he's a hack. Well, I hated Midsommar, but I don't think I don't. I I I'm like this is a dude who knows how to make the movies that he wants to make. He's sure, a very skilled filmmaker. But I just like fucking pl- plenty of people call him a hack. I mean, yeah, he, I don't. He and it's easy to see why he in he directly lifts things from other movies and uses them to his own. Um, creativity. Dude, and he seems like a dude who's fucking, who did the thing. He went to fucking film school. He got to make fucking crazy ass movies. He's yeah. having fun doing it. Like, And now Martin Scorsese if, is like presenting his It's not films. like if I w- went to film school and then ended up somehow getting the keys to the kingdom, I wouldn't have a movie referencing fucking clerks. Like, Right. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I just mean conceptually. Like, a lot of the negativity around both Hereditary and Midsommar were that they are both clones. If you do the most basic bitch read of them, you'd be like, oh, well, that's been done before. And that that is the case with that every is the case with every movie. fucking movie. And especially Hereditary es- is like especially a dude who finally did that differently. Every <laughs> horror movie. When you go into the horror market, I I fucking dare you to hand me five movies a year three horror movies a year that aren't like another horror movie you it's not fucking there's possible. no way so there's absolutely no way so yeah props to, to ari going into this wherever we're gonna go from here about this movie we'll find out um as for now um dan and i do disagree on our overalls with ari aster but i think we both find I mean, I him to in, be valuable i think we're in total alignment with hereditary with Hereditary, sure, but Midsommar, I mean, that's a really big split. Yeah. I mean, I think... With all mi- the things that we're so diametrically opposed on, it's so... I'm, like, very interested in this episode because the one thing we've always been, like, identical on is David Lynch's catalog, which is very interesting to me. Right. However, we've only ever talked about David Lynch as as a surrealist filmmaker. We haven't talked about... I think that Bo is Afraid is not all that lynchian and i and the the reason being and i don't think it's very i agree with that as well i don't think it's very wes anderson-y either and the reason that i don't think it's either of those especially lately is that the biggest thing of restraint and again i'm 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 gonna say that this is not even a comment positively or negatively about the movie because not having something in your movie doesn't particularly mean that you did it on purpose but i'm saying that 
the strength and resilience of Ari Aster to not make Bo is afraid about filmmaking or writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or and and look, Charlie Kaufman is the goat, but even he has trouble that, with that. Oh yeah. Like he if you look at I'm thinking of ending things, that's a movie that was fucking based on a book. Mm-hmm. His original work is always going to be about the creative being the creative. Mm-hmm. And we saw Wes Anderson abuse the shit out of that. And we've seen so, I mean, Quentin Tarantino, I would argue, ruined Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because he couldn't stop staring at himself. Yeah. And I I really am done with like, and Licorice Pizza from PTA. I'm done looking at Hollywood. I don't care what era it's in. I'm done like looking at directors. Did we, did we ever talk about Licorice Pizza on this podcast? We will for Phantom Thread, yeah, our next episode. Yeah. But we did talk about it. We were, I think we were both mixed on it. Yeah. Not our favorite. Yeah. Now I have a really huge, huge crush on Alana Haim, so I'm thinking about going back and watching it mm. with that knowledge in, in in my brain. But that's that's just for me to know. Yeah, delete that for sure. Yeah. Um. Bows of Red. How can you not sing along with that piano sting, you know? <laughs> it's impossible. It's like Mozart. 10 out of 10. Di- no, I'm just- <laughs> <laughs> so We're not starting like that. Um, so here we are. It's been a long time coming to get to Ari Aster's uh, magnum opus, I think, is, is the term you could use for a three hour. And it, was it above three hours? It was three hours and like a couple minutes. It three, was like hours three hours and a I couple minutes. This, the credits were very long, so I feel like it was a, a hard, a solid three. Credits this is the, the first time we're revisiting a filmmaker since season one. What? Yeah. How's that possible? That Midsommar was that's, like the that's fifth, sixth movie we ever did. That is a lie on so many levels. I don't even know. Where are you drawing your statistics from? Because we've done like 11 Kevin Smith movies. No, I mean, no, I'm saying it's the like longest gap between us revisiting a filmmaker. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, this one's in real time. Yeah. <laughs> Unlike most of our frozen in amber shit movies that we do. Yeah. Uh, Daddy Ari's rolling right now. Uh He's basically getting a piggyback ride from Martin Scorsese being trotted around the country for Bo is Afraid. Yeah. I don't know if you've watched any of those bizarre instances. Or... No, I, when I was doing my po- my you know post-movie pre-show research, as I do, I was like reading and in passing, like I, I, I was scanning, I was scanning, and I saw the mention like that he like was filming, showing the movie with a Q&A curated by Martin Scorsese. And I just like, I kept reading and then like five paragraphs down, I was like, wait, what the fuck did that say earlier? And yeah. I like reread the sentence like three times. I was just like, "What? What's happening?" Yeah, Martin Scorsese loved this movie. Really, is obsessed with it. He went on like a road show, basically, with Ari introducing it, watching it. He the the one introduction I watched of him, he was like, "This is the fourth time I've watched this movie," and I was just like, "This man, regardless of the quality of this picture, doesn't have that many hours left in his yeah. life." The fact that he would spend twelve of them watching this movie is questionable it, <laughs> i was thinking that because last week i watched the uh the new last waltz 4k disc and, uh-huh. and it had i didn't realize criterion actually got like new interviews with scorsese and shit for the package mm. so i was watching last waltz as one does when someone dies and i was watching this interview with scorsese that was taken like 
six months ago, eight months ago. Um, and it's a very long, like beefy, like 45 minute fucking just talk with him. And I was just like, they were, they really went into like the nooks and crannies of how that was shot. Which uh-huh. like, you know, I never put too much thought into like, you know, I'm like, it's a concert movie. I know that it looks amazing, but I'm just like, I didn't really think about like how not there the technology was to film a live show 40 years ago. Uh-huh. And like they were, them showing the behind, behind the scenes shit of the way they were filming that is so fucking mind-blowing to me and genius where I was, I was like I was like you know you know what people don't say enough is that that Marty Scorsese's a really fucking smart filmmaker <laughs> <laughs> thank you for adding that to the lexicon Dan yeah. that's much appreciated I'm, I'm good. that's my hot take for the day is that Martin Scorsese king fucking great great filmmaker protect him at all costs king of comedy <laughs> 10 out of 10 yeah I love Martin Scorsese um Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, well, so today we're reviewing Martin Scorsese. So today, yeah, we're just reviewing an Italian king. Remember um, in the first season where we were like doing top 10 lists at every episode? <laughs> the first one we did was... Were we? Yeah, in the very first... Uh, or no, in this first or second episode, we end with top 10 Martin Scorsese films. Just Morton. For, for, for whatever reason. Like, it wasn't relevant to what we were watching. Well... Because that was where <laughs> I said my favorite was Gangs in New York, and you flipped out. I just remember early on, I was like... Uh, we listened to like the first episode or so and I was like, well, this is Dan scared and me just talking as much as I can to fill every single second of silence because yeah. <laughs> I'm psychotic. And I remember reaching out to you and being like, so what do you, what do you um, bring into the table here? And you were like, <laughs> I like lists. <laughs> and I was like, we're doing it. That is our permanent segment. And I remember doing it a couple of times being like, that was exhausting. Yeah. No, thank you. No, yeah. nobody wants that unless it's its own episode. Um, what do you think out of 10 I would have given this movie on my first watch? Let's play this game. Now, I, I again want to reiterate to the viewer that I watched this. First of all, I watched the first hour um, a month or two ago. I watched the first hour and we were going to continue it the next night. But then in that period of time, we decided the or I decided that we were going to do it for the podcast. So I just said to Rachel, I'll just rewatch it when we get um, further down the road, closer to the episode. So let's first start with what do you think I gave the first hour of Bo is afraid the first time I watched it a month ago, Dan, dude. So like to try to track my progress. I know I I really, cause this is going to, this is going to shock you. I don't have (laughs) the slightest clue. Like I, have sure. spent so much time trying to figure out what the fuck it was you were going to feel about this movie. Right. Um, like, I, the first hour, I feel like you would have given like a 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10 yeah. was the number I gave the first hour. Okay. Because at, the way I score movies on in anything is around an hour, a number appears in my brain and it can go up, it can, it can go down, but it's how I'm feeling. At that moment, I'm like, I'm getting a seven out of this. Like, I'm Mm. 70% engaged by what's going on. 10 out of 10. Okay. Came back to the movie, watched the first hour again, enjoyed it even more, found things that I would never have noticed unless I literally paused the movie, which I did many times throughout. Um, What do you think I gave the film once I finished it for the first time? Like the overall film? Overall film. Uh, a seven out of ten. Seven out of ten. Yeah. 
my first watch of Bo is Afraid, I gave a four out of ten. Whoa. Hated it. Okay. Walked away from it being like the next two hours <sighs> being like so I'm bad I'm, that you fucking I'm they ruined. undid a ten. I was like, I'm ruined. Wow. I'm I'm literally ruined by this movie. Reached out to Andrew Fisher first. No, other way around. Because I posted in in the rental zone. What does everybody think about Bo is Afraid? I know. I went uh, last night. I afterwards I went into the rental zone and searched for Bo is Afraid to see what discussion was happening when it came out. Yeah. I was reading all of that. What was that like? Um, Mo- mostly negative, positive. It was um, there. So it was very like challenging picture. Need to see it again. Yeah. Uh, fucking hated it. Sure. Fucking loved it. Sure. Um, and but then just mostly just like I don't know what I just watched. So I'll, I'll be transparent about some things that I didn't. <laughs> I don't want to use the term I didn't understand. I didn't vibe with. Okay. <laughs> the first time around, um, the play in the woods. Yep. Was like a harpoon into my brain. Yeah. I, I was ready for this movie to glaze my dome, and that scene in the forest was like. Ari Aster tying two eight by eight by sixteen hollow concrete blocks to my feet and throwing me in the Staten Island River. <laughs> okay, um, a slog. When I recovered from that, I found that there were a lot of things happening in the last forty minutes of the movie that I flat out my brain rejected. My right. brain was like, "Help me, help me, help you understand what is happening here," because a lot of things happened in the plot literally later on after a lot of figurative surrealism in the middle that I didn't know we were being serious like I you know when we come down in the podcast room and we're talking to each other on mic and you're like did you press record yet yeah that is how I felt towards the end of the movie okay I was like oh oh, okay wait we're back into not reality but the heightened fantasy that I had bought into and then things were happening where I was like Oh, but Daddy Ari wants me to tell me that this is all a nightmare, that this is all like none of this is real. There's a giant penis like things were happening. And I was like, only by revisiting all of this in context. And I will say, stop now listening to this if you've not seen the movie, because we have to spoil it. I feel like. Oh, yeah. Um, But there's late game twist in this movie that I would argue you cannot process the entirety of the beginning of the movie correctly unless you are aware of it as you're watching it through. And that's a thing in a movie. Good example being Malignant, where first half of Malignant, I thought was one of the worst horror movies I've ever seen. And then the twist happened and informed everything backwards. And then I was in this weird zone of like, is this a seven? Is this a 10? This movie was a three. Like, where are we going with this? Um, The twist in this movie gave me that retroactive boost to do the research, even though I was upset. And was ready to say this movie was just terrible. Um, And uh, then when all of this kind of settled in my brain and I was like, you owe it to yourself. You owe it to Daddy Ari to do a couple things. The first thing is don't look anything up. I usually go to like all sorts of resources not to explain me things. Yeah. I know some people go to those resources to have things explained to them because they. It's nice to read discourse. Of I like to read high functioning brains. Yeah. Reactions to things I, that I find challenging. I do that for every movie I watch. So I told myself, don't do that either, because I don't want to let anyone's 
Yeah, you don't want to watch it through their lens, yeah, which is just that's their crazy. interpretation, that's crazy. and then just uh, confirmation bias yourself. So, let me just give you, and we'll switch over to you and your whole experience with it in a minute, but uh, I'll just give you my conception upon first watching Bo is Afraid. Bad movie. <laughs> Hated that. Loved the beginning. Loved everything they had set up. Movie fell apart. Wheels flew off the wagon. God knows what we're doing. Question mark, question mark, question mark. Interesting twist. Am I being too harsh? Very bad ending. Very anticlimactic. Just a fucking masturbatory car wreck in all ways. Not really a movie that you could walk out of saying like, but Joaquin, because the man was wordless for 80% of the movie. He was doing the Lord's work as as a as doing Jew face, but I do, which in this case was balding Jew face, which I don't appreciate either. <laughs> um, and um, uh, balding and fat Jew face. Like he gained weight and they made him look bald. That's racism. But we're, your costume is not my... Co anyway, um, the big uh, Travolta in the fanatic vibe. <laughs> the, yeah, kind of. That's a great comparison, actually. They should add Travolta. Imagine how good this movie could have been with Travolta in it, just playing like a pathetic. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, first watch, very fraught, very painful, uh, confusing. F not even in the same galaxy as Hereditary and Midsommar for me. Just kind of like a bad knockoff of like um, a Charlie Kaufman movie made by a lesser brain that hit some good moments, did some good things. But overall, the experience left me unsettled. Okay. Second watch, straight through watch. Absolutely loved it. Great movie. What did I give Midsommar? Uh, An eight. I would say like 7.5 out of 10, ultimately. And that may grow because at this point... That's what you're currently giving Bo is afraid. Yeah. Um, Midsommar for me is like a movie that went from like an eight to like a 9.5 and hereditary is like a 10 i i don't find any faults in hereditary i'd like to know what they are someone please inform me i think that that movie is a tight insane watch um and gets better every time this is a movie that i think will get better every single time i watch it now that i fully have informed the ideas in my brain i thought it was a movie that had Nothing to do with certain topics that were introduced until very late into the film. And then I thought, it's too late for a twist. Why are we doing a twist? And then uh, later into the twist, realized that everything I had seen, every moment, every uh, strange happening, every abstract moment of Bo is Afraid is explainable, quantifiable. It makes sense with what is being done done with the twist it's just not stated narratively in a way that is satisfying i don't know if that's on purpose it's not an enjoyable movie i don't think that people should like grab their grandma and go watch bo's afraid i know a lot of people are going to hate it and i think that once you unlock the key like all of ari aster's movies once you have that decoder of understanding whether and that can change from person to person which is what's brilliant about it but once it unlocked for me it was like 
just music to my ears, every fucking scene of it until the, the very last second. And this is a movie that upon my first watch, when the credits rolled, I laughed. I would have been the guy in the theater, and I hate to say this, and thank God I didn't see it in the theater for this very reason, that would have stood up and been like, no! <laughs> um, and mean, now... As the credits are rolling, as the whole crowd around him is yeah. slowly mm-hmm. getting up? Well, uh, yeah, as people are disinterestedly walking away mm-hmm. uh, from Bo drowning in the film, um, it's the exact mirror of people leaving. That's the only reason I wish I could have seen it in theaters. Yeah. Um, to be a part of that experience for sure but um, i saw one reviewer online saying that in that it was like the this incredibly glowing review and saying in that moment while everyone was just getting up like disinterested and frustrated perfect. he was just sitting alone in the theater cackling with laughter holding up a mirror for yeah. sure um but yeah just to finally finish my rant here uh i'm ready to defend and talk about um the things that make this movie brilliant which i haven't even started talking about i feel like yet um but Huge win for me, this one. My wife is going to kill me when she listens to this episode. Sorry, Rachel. This is such glowing praise for something you're only giving a 7.5. One of the most fucking I polarizing pictures well, of no, no, the no. recent memory, and you give it the most like no, no, no. uncontroversial score ever. Uh, let me change it, because I didn't finish my sentiment from before, because since my stroke, I, um, <laughs> th- th- I had to raise Midsommar. So like Midsommar is like a 9.5 in my brain at this point. My Dir- man's an Ari Aster stan. Um, hereditary hard 10 i would give this an eight i am not willing to go anywhere beyond an eight i cannot go to an 8.1 on this movie because it is a movie that like kind of hurt me first before (laughs) before it made me fall in love with it and there are tons of movies like that y'all that have done that for me lately i'm thinking of ending things like i mentioned nope was a movie that i walked out of and was like why why would anybody have enjoyed that and then all I needed to do is fucking watch it at home one more time. And I don't know what that says about me. I guess we'll explore that or you uh, or any viewer, how they need to digest a challenging film. But um, I'm here to stand for my boy R, even though originally I really didn't think I was going to. Now, I'll say as I'm switching over to Dan Endon's rant for the day that I think and I'm trying to predict Dan's behavior on this one yeah why don't you why don't you tell me what you think my my score is going to be of the first hour and the rest of the film (sighs) well it's hard with you because you don't like things attacking you and stressing you out um that are too close to home and i think that this movie's grand guignol portrayal of anxiety and its effect backwards on a human to not be able to not only anxiety, but my God, mommy issues, uh, having a controlling, evil, fraught relationship with your mother and how that stunts your intimacy, stunts your every move in life. And both of us suffer, I'm sure, from Jewish motherly guilt. And that this whole movie you could have just called Jewish mother's guilt the movie. I mean, yeah, this, right. This is an entire film about many things that do plague a, a a person who has anxiety but this is a film that is about g- how generational trauma which if you look up the most basic definition of generational trauma causes people to have anxiety agoraphobia i mean these are direct results so like someone if they were to watch this movie and be like the take is it's about anxiety it's not 
I don't think it's about anxiety. It's about a man whose mother has figured out how to control his life from the moment he exits her to his eventual death. Um, and the guilt that comes with that. And, and the control that she is able to impart even in absence. Yeah, of course. It's, yeah. om it's omnipresent. But all of these things are real things that are macro, blown up macrocosms of, of real feelings that we as Jewish men feel about our mothers and have relationships with our mothers where they attempt to make us feel bad about things that we didn't do, uh, where they make us feel like the world is our enemy and we need to seek them out. So again, uh, I don't know how these things jive with you. I'm gonna say that because I hated this movie so much upon my initial watch that you loved it. That is my guess. Okay. Because like, I could see someone like Andre walk into this movie and be like, that is the only good movie that Ari Aster has made. And I've read a lot of reviews of people that are like, Midsommar, not for me. Hereditary, not for me. This movie was great. Right, really? Oh yeah, James Nakaruto. I saw that. I mean, in, in I saw him, but no, I've seen other reactions to that of like, I watch some channels where I just do it for educational purposes. People who talk about movies that I've, like Andre basically, where they're talking about movies I didn't even know existed. Right. Like, and I would never seek out in 100,000 years. And channels like that, people are like, Bo's Afraid, great movie. And I was like, Jesus, I'm going to hate this movie so much. Um, yeah, I would assume that... I don't know how you couldn't like the first hour, though. What would Dan think about the first hour? It's so strong. Had the movie been three hours of the first hour's energy, it this would have been his best movie for me. 10 out of 10 best work he's ever done i'm gonna guess dan forever the contrarian <laughs> somehow felt more about this movie which somehow that that pisses me off because this is like if that is the way we're going this is the reaction i wanted out of kind of midsummer so i don't somehow he's still winning here <laughs> if he loved this movie i would assume he hated it everyone assumes that dan hates this movie dan's made it a public uh like facade that he is going to hate this movie so dan what did you think about 2023's bo's afraid so a lot of reviews about this picture were very along the lines of what we alluded to like first hour 10 out of 10 amazing <sighs> right then just became a complete slog every slog review calls out the play sequence mm -hmm. which I feel like in isolation was a very solid sequence. The problem with it in the context of this picture is sure. that it had been generating steady momentum for a very long time at that point and then just zapped it out of the room for a solid chunk of time. Yeah, like I'm not the person who who set up one scene before that, a sadistic war veteran hunting Bo by a tracker uh, to to quote rip him in half um that was you ari you know what i mean ari was like i'm gonna set up a really tense <laughs> series of circumstances that will last over an hour and then you're just gonna have to sit and, and watch this surrealist play and yeah second time around i absolutely love the play but the first time holy fucking shit did that check me out yeah um especially watching this back to back with phantom thread Oh yeah, this was a this was a, a ruthless pairing, challenging week of of, of films. <laughs> yeah, I felt like my brain was pretty tired after experiencing both in, both of those movies in such close proximity. Holy shit! Yeah, all right. <laughs> I'm I'm just gonna rip the bandaid off. Yeah. Um, I am giving Bo is Afraid 
a nine out of ten. Wild. I wow. Loved it. That is fucking insane. I think it is far and away Ari Aster's best picture. Nuts. I cannot wait to watch it again. I hear you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And had I not rewatched it, this would be the weirdest episode of all time. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it would have just been the Midsommar episode in reverse. In reverse, completely. Yeah, I mean, um, I needed a lot of things to happen for me to to love this movie and they did happen but only in my brain like after I'd watched it okay <laughs> um, there's clearly the reveal that Mona Wasserman Bo's mother has orchestrated everything in his life that is what the key was for me I mean sure I thought that on a conceptual level as I was watching the movie because I too suffer from generational trauma so in my mind I'm like a lot of the things that Bo is suffering from here are mommy issues, right? I mean, that's clear. And anybody who knows what mommy issues are know that they can control a person's life entirely. And I thought we were playing with that metaphor. You know what I mean? Like, ooh, juicy kind of subtext in the background, Ari. Then it became real. Right. Then it became everything you've seen is a fabrication of his mother, Mona. And... The moment that it opened up for me, as fucking crazy as it sounds, was the sight of a TV dinner. <laughs> because very early on in the movie, Bo, who lives in this horrific dystopian Los Angeles, maybe, uh, facsimile, um, in his fridge, he pulls out a TV dinner. And this is like, again, what makes Ari Aster fucking the current goat for me, is that pulls out a TV dinner. It's disgusting. It's a hybrid between Irish and Hawaiian food. Yeah. It said like the best of Irish and Hawaiian cuisine. And yeah. it was like a picture of like a poke bowl from hell, basically. Yeah. And it stuck in my mind. That is the Chekhov's gun when it comes to Ari Aster, the tiniest fucking details. And later on in the movie, as Bo is in this labyrinthine house that his mother lives in, he discovers, not discovers, but he is looking through, and this is probably my favorite scene in the whole movie, a timeline of her company, uh, of her business dealings, of her accomplishments from like the 1960s to now, because she's a very successful business tycoon. Um, that scene is when my brain was fucking going insane. Yeah, it's like the end of the usual suspect. Yeah, it's like it, you find out that she owns his apartment building. Sure. Um, but I do want to push back on the idea that it is necessarily that literally of the reveal being that his whole life is a Truman Show situation. Wait, because... hold on. The TV dinner, though. Okay. We pan down across Mona's many various works, and one of them, among many, is her designing the cover of the TV dinner. Yeah. That And it's it's like open on a workstation, basically. So then my brain went into overdrive. I'm like, oh, this is like a she did everything situation. I don't think it's a Truman. Yeah, they show a collage of all of her, like all of her employees. Yeah. And they're all the people that he's interacted with in his life. Well, here is when I really when I had like a like a Bruce Willis realizing he's dead moment. Right. Like, but I was actually Bruce Willis. Like I paused the movie on a series of plans for an apartment uh, complex that instantly I'm like, that is Bo's apartment. Uh, it is more than Mona Wasserman 
owns the building that he lives in. I don't know how far you've gazed into some of these details, but on that plan, it breaks down that his community that he lives in is built for those suffering from drugs that the Mona Wasserman Corporation has created. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she has created the hell world, and this is my take at least, mm-hmm. she has created the hell world that he lives in for a multitude of reasons. One of them is so that he will want to come back to her. That's the core, I would say, intent of why the motor, why he... There's this thought in in, a la, in like a logical brain, why does Bo live in such a shithole if his mother is so rich, right? I think that that isn't a missed detail. I think that's on purpose. Mm-hmm. I think that she put him in those circumstances and he thought to himself, I can still do it. I can still live. I don't need my mother. And this movie is a portrayal of how she twists his life and mind into thinking that he does need his mother, even though he never even really accepts that. Her whole intent is just to make him feel as if he needs her. And the details of like his whole life, his meeting with his first love, Parker Posey on a, on a ship, um, his uh, being in ads for her company that are for different ADD medications for different all prescription medications. And now he lives in a community of people negatively affected by those drugs. Right. It's it it's yeah, I mean, it's I don't take any of the shit literally because it's not one of those movies. I just get this vibe. And like you said correctly earlier, these movies are about the vibe you get from it. The vibe I get from it. I don't care whether she physically has some Truman show esque plan to control him. All I care about is that's how it appears. Yeah, yeah. And that's how it appears to say a girlfriend to a boyfriend who is controlled by his mother. That's how it appears uh, to many people who struggle with these issues and it, it it's <laughs> it is a mind fuck for me i mean i don't have some of those issues so like i had to think harder about them but um i i felt as if it was an, an effective twist it just like didn't hit me the first time correctly because i was exhausted yeah i mean it's an exhausting movie and i think you know everything that dan just laid out very easily like i think there's probably you know a lot of the reviews of the movie and discussion about it has been like, what does it mean? What was happening in the movie? Um, and generally when I enter a movie like this, I try to avoid thinking of things that way. I mean, you mm-hmm. can't nod afterwards, but like, that's not really what matters to me. But I, you know, I was like, you know, afterwards I was trying to dissect it and figure out what I thought about it. And I think there are like two very obvious, like one A and one B of like camps of like what the, your interpretation if you need to make one is, and I think one of them is everything Dan said, and everything that Dan just said is 100% supportable within the movie, and you could rewatch it and be like, yeah, that's absolutely what this movie's about, clearly. Yeah. Um, There's an equally, you could could also just look at it as, this was all a dream, and everything is a manifestation of various neuroses and anxieties. Sure. I hate the Um, take, and I I have heard it several times, that the first hour and many of the proceedings later are Bo's like what kind of like voices with Ryan Reynolds like what Bo is seeing in his mind I didn't 
take yeah. it as that at all. I mean, I, well, well, I didn't it, need to gaslight myself into creating a actual reality of this that needed to run concurrent with it. The only interesting aspect of that viewing of it that I found, which is like one of my more like favorite ideas that I was thinking about with the movie, is that like throughout not even the first hour, like say the first half hour, um, we're presented with this hellscape that he lives in, and there's all this just like grotesque unfettered crime and violence and the way he's running across the street to avoid it while people are being insane like hilarious i'm like this is so over the top and like i couldn't imagine the anxiety that someone would feel in that situation but i'm like oh wait that's how i feel yes, normally I that's how i feel <laughs> when i walk through like just the regular hood sure in philly yeah like i live by kensington when i drive through that i'm like i'm like is this just showing like a visualization of how over the top our anxiety can be when presented with like even like slight fucking crime of course like, yes so of i'm course. like that's interesting you know but at the end of it like if you could easily watch this whole movie being like there's such clear blatant symbolism very literal manifestations of, of symbolism and metaphor that it's just like you could watch this whole thing saying this was a dream um, this was just a person living, you know, harrowing circumstances, <laughs> but we're seeing, like this we're movie. seeing the visualizations of, uh, the neuroses manifest this isn't or, right. or you could equally see the movie as this was like a manufactured setting meant to drive this person crazy by like one of the most manipulative people ever. Sure. And it's like, even if that's not the case, the impact that his mother's general fucking narcissistic and controlling demeanor has made his life feel that way regardless. Can we talk about the elephant in the room? Uh, what? What did what did you feel watching this movie? I mean, obviously, of course, it hit both of us in in many many ways when it comes to anxiety, when it comes to being put upon, feeling as if you need to feel guilty about things that are irrational. Yeah. Um, those are things that I'm sure both of us vibed with. I have a mother who is as soft as a lamb. I mean, she is the nicest person in the world. I've never heard her swear. I've never heard her say or do anything um, that is malicious, even under the guise of both extremely negative cults that she's actually in. I don't. She doesn't act like either group of those people. She doesn't seek to control or affect me negatively. She is a a person who always wants the best for me, will let me do anything, will support me at any moment. It probably is why I have any shred of decency. I think without my mom being very good to me and a, and a great person, I would probably be in jail or dead, like or a serial killer or right. or something equally as horrible because I have a lot of flaws and weaknesses and insecurities and issues. And if I didn't have at least her to raise me and do a good job, I can't even fathom what I would think about anything or if I'd be alive. Um, you and you, you feel free to not talk about or talk about anything you want, obviously. But you have made it clear to me that you and your mom have a much more contentious relationship, yeah. which I'm going to say between that and the fact that Bo's father is dead which is something else that, of course, we've tackled on this podcast when it comes to your parents versus my parents and in, in our raising and, and our influences by them. Um, you had a more positive relationship in the time you had 
with your dad than I ever have with my dad in 36 years. Probably haven't had a never sat with my dad and watched a movie and been like, cool, like me and dad watched a movie like you had a a cool dad relationship. I never had that. Um, But you have a lot more in common with Bo and his parental nightmare than I surely did. So I did that play very hard into your read of this movie. Yeah, I mean, when you preface... I did pre-apologize for making you watch this movie because I knew it was going to be a lot. No, but like <laughs> it made me think that it was going to be much more than it was because while my relationship with my mother is easily just as toxic and just as like uh, traumatizing for the impact on my day-to-day life as Bo's, like, there are almost no similarities between the characters in terms of what the actual abuse that he's dealing with, like... My, I for sure. Well, I don't think it's even entirely clear the abuse that he's dealing with. I think they were, I think they were very vague about it. Like the yeah. the amount of scenes where you really see her abusing him, and it's not just implied, like a nightmare or something like that, are very few. I, I'm not sure what in all she did to him. I think she like mommied him and controlled him yeah, probably more I, than your I, mom. I did. saw one interpretation that was like. He, she was sexually abusing him, and that's like why she was jealous there, of, there are of implications. the girlfriend. Um, I, yeah, I mean, <sighs> what's clear is that the abuse comes. What abuse is there? Is the like Jewish guilt and gaslighting and like neediness mm-hmm. and like what do they call it? Like parentalization, where like the mother needs treats the child like the parent. Sure. Um, I like my. Like, I never got Jewish guilt from my mom. That's not a thing. I get it. That I did. I get it from my grandmother, like, in a, in a very stereotypical fashion. But, like, my issues with my mom were all more issues of neglect. There's no dynamic that exists in my life or our relationship where, or, like, neuroses related to, like, being guilted into feeling like I didn't do enough for her or, like, sure. need to go do anything with it's her the, kind or, of the or, like, support her. Like, it's all, it's, it's, it's always been an issue of <laughs> indifference. Yeah, that's not cool. That, like, the, there was never, that like, I'll, I'll, I'll go a year without talking, interacting with my mom at all. Like, right. she could easily not know that I'm alive. There's never, like, a, you need to come see me. It's always, it's, like, it's, like, I don't care if you come see me. So maybe this is more about me because like, I have that. I, I, I mean, have that, but it isn't, it doesn't affect my life, and I wouldn't say that... I or you seemingly have mommy issues. No, I for sure have. I mean, only you, by only by function of the fact that the person who treated me this way was my mother and she was the only one yeah, raising me. But you like, don't have like stereotypical mommy issues. What? No, what's I have issues with feeling neglect. What's portrayed <laughs> in Bo is Afraid is like a kind of Jewish motherly relationship that I guess what we're proving here is you and I don't really have um what i thought you would connect with is not so much that so much as just being abused by by your mother in a way that fucks your life up for sure and i mean i still go to therapy every week and like complain about my mother sure and like i still (laughs) like i still can trace an overwhelming amount of like the negative habits and behaviors and like thought patterns that exist in my life I mean, back to things that she instilled on me. I think the fact that in this film, the mother, because like everything that happens in her scheme, which I'm now realizing as I'm thinking more about, is still like very symbolic to the way that it is to have that relationship with your mother. Like, okay, for example, she hires his therapist and she. All right. Wait, pause. Yeah. All right. (laughs) 
All right, so uh, check uh, check mark number one on like one Uh-oh. of like the big the <laughs> the biggest red flags with my relationship with my mother uh-huh. that like <laughs> is consistently seen as the most harrowing both by my romantic partners and um, my <laughs> subsequent therapists uh-huh. is that uh, when my parents split up, um, my mom immediately put me into therapy. Uh, at age 11 and I, I would get taken to this therapist every week for years mm-hmm. and had at this point in my life like you know my parents were getting divorced so that was you know fucking with me as it would any kid but like I hadn't acted out in any way like I was I was so I would just sit in therapy every week being like I don't understand why I'm here and we would just kind of sit there for an hour and just like talk about things and accomplish nothing and mm-hmm. we would like try to drag like trauma out of me that wasn't there yet like there was nothing to talk about i was just like i don't understand why i'm being put in therapy i don't understand why i'm here i don't understand why i can't stop coming and it kept being it it became this years-long cycle i went until freshman year of high school where he'd be like i can't discharge you until you open up and i'm just like dude i don't have anything to open up about like truly like i've told you everything that's happening in my life like i don't fucking understand why i'm here right um I found out after the fact that that entire time my mom was seeing the same therapist. I knew that was coming. And, yeah. and and that's what I'm talking about. Like there are a lot of very literal insane things that are part of the twist of this movie and the guise of this movie that may seem ridiculous like on their face, but when you look at them they're they're symbolic of like cycles that we do have yeah. to go through therapy was for sure used as a weapon against me yeah like, so so that's exactly what's going on in this movie <laughs> yeah. that the movie opens with Bo in his therapist's office and the therapist is doing that very thing he's trying to draw out um guilty statements from Bo about his mother because his mother has hired him to basically compile evidence against him which will later be used in a trial um Again, a symbolic trial, I would assume. Yeah. See, that would never happen to me because my mom would never put that much effort into anything. Sure. <laughs> sure. The whole time I was just like, wow, I wish my mom was like Bo's mom. Whereas, whereas <laughs> I could see my mom having like a dossier of like times Daniel hurt me for sure. So. Yeah. I don't even like, I don't even think my mom could tell you like what year I graduated high school. <laughs> my mom then is very much more like Moda Wasserman than, than yours. Um, And, you know, she is, uh, yeah, she hires the therapist to do this to him. But like that, that is also symbolic because like there are people who go to therapy for these issues and their mother dominates the conversation. Um, and it is that dominating of the conversation that almost has your mother in the room, almost has her controlling that aspect of your life. And it's, it's the motherly relationship. I mean, like a lot of people are like, well, Ari Aster took the the mommy issues from um, Hereditary and dialed it up to eleven. Like, yeah, like he did that for sure. Um, and and this movie's every mechanism stems back to these issues. And I know there are a lot of people like struggling with what their read is to this movie. And that that I guess I can't be too negative about because my first read of this movie was that I understood all of this. I understood that, of course, that the mom faked her own death and yada, yada, yada. I just felt like the ride was fucking retarded. And I really 
had negative emotions towards this movie when it ended, even though I knew that so much of it was great. And again, that first hour was what I think Ari thought his fans were looking for. Right. And then the two hours after that were him like really stretching out and being fucking Making big fish. Yeah. Just going crazy on it. Going crazy on the D. Um, yeah, I mean, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the what his mother actually did. Like, I don't understand again, the people none of who this don't matters. get the messaging of the movie. Like, yeah. to me, it, it what's clear as day is that like it, there's ton that is you can be debating about until you, your face is blue. But what's not arguable is like this movie is clearly about uh, childhood trauma. Yeah, the lingering effects of it, guilt, guilt over it, and how no matter what steps you take to remove yourself from it, separate from it, distance yourself from it, you it's always there and informing your perception of things. So, yeah, like what you're saying about it, it's like your mom is in the room. Like, I still, you know, when I get into an argument with Kat after the fact, like, have to, like, look back on my behavior and be like, was I having a visceral reaction to this because it reminded me of something that was said to me at a time like it's, mm. a, it's about the fact that these things not only stay with you but they inform and totally warp your perception and they can dictate your every move and even yeah and they can make you just have no idea what's real and what's valid and ha- like make you operate in life from a place of feeling and emotion without a clear understanding in the moment of what is real about what you're reacting to i would also say that everything you just said apply that to also anxiety yeah yeah for Uh, sure of course i i think that it's all the same this movie is brilliant that it marries a couple things together that are in the psychological field clearly married together like he didn't just make a movie that is the first hour because the first hour is only about anxiety to me yeah it's about being agoraphobic. It's about being afraid of the state in which the world is in currently. It's about everything seeming like an imposition on you while being so sure that none of it's your fault. Yeah. And then spending your all of your time after that trying to figure out the truth of, was it my fault? Sure. And, and, da- and, and doubting look. your own perception. And he's, like, he's objectively not at fault, but he was made to doubt himself and feel like he was in the wrong. And then the rest of the movie is just like about the anxiety and the existential threat of not your your perception of reality and what you're being told reality is not lining up. And that's fucking devastating to your anxiety levels. I would also say that the movie, and this is brand new take for me, that is just formed in my brain, is, is in many ways symbolic of the process of going through therapy. Um, I, I, the, there the, was a solid chunk of the movie where I was like, is this about the stages of unpacking trauma? Is this about the stages listen, of grief? Yeah, this like, is, I'm thinking like the idea that is coming into my brain now about it is like, it's, it's sort of like the levels of therapy. You come in, your first read is, of course, your pressing anxieties that are happening now. Because yeah. this was the, when I developed my anxiety disorder a few years ago, this was the levels at which I had to attack it. First, I came in and said, everything is terrifying me and making me feel too much. And that's the first hour of this movie. Everything is terrifying me and making me feel too much. The second layer of that is um, maybe not in chronological order, but um, let's explore um, what your life could be like half had you actually not let these things tear you down and you recognize your potential and what are you working toward? What are your therapy goals? And that to me is the play. The play is like, 
what would Bo have been if these circumstances chose not to devastate him, but embolden him and make him live a normal, regular life? Right. Um, and then um, the final stage of therapy, which I reached before I had stopped talk therapy after I had came over my anxiety disorder and no longer was suffering panic attacks like I was. And that is, it's all your fucking mom's fault. It's yeah, all right. your parents' yeah. fault. That's the, the kind of, and that's the classic, um, just like, most basic Freudian read as well. Like when you finally hit the bottom layer, it is your parents. You know what I mean? It's like that. You can't get further than that. Cause that is who created you. And it's so fitting that this movie starts with a birth of him, like coming out of his mother's fucking womb as she's fucking screaming. And he's like fucked up from the get go and has a huge ball sack, which they show in the first yeah. scene. And, and yeah, I mean, I think that, why not show a birth scene in this movie? It's so much about the cycle of trauma being passed directly Dude, to and, your and fucking offspring. And showing the impact of like intimate, like on intimacy issues yep. and shit. Like, which is why I think Parker Posey died when he had sex with her. Yeah, they made you think it was going to be for a different reason, or that she was going to explode with cum because yeah. his balls were so big. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's more what you were just touching on. I think the reason Parker Posey died is because like the mom pretty much zaps her out of existence. Like, yes, you have the subtext that the mom employs her, that the mom wanted her to be on that cruise to test Bo. Everything is a test with Bo, um, with the mother. There are pointed questions throughout the movie that I noticed. Tons of pointed questions. I think the next time I watch it, I'm going to look for more of them. But there are so many times when the employees of Bo, of Bo's mother ask him direct pointed questions that are meant to be used later on in the trial. Yeah, yeah. And just being like, well, Bo, do you want to go home tonight or are you right. okay leaving tomorrow? Yeah. Like, that's a test for yeah. his mother to later see. And he's like, he's like, so just to be clear, this is your decision. <laughs> yeah. And this is in and around when the woman hands him the slip that's like, stop incriminating yourself. I mean, literally yeah. as if he were going to trial. Like, crazy. Great. Just, and when you watch Ari talk about it and this is kind of classic though for people that are operating on this level his take of Bo's Afraid is like super terrible and like doesn't make any sense like who's this? Ari Aster Oh, like I watched an interview with him last first I watched a video of a guy that was like S don't say that this movie is about anxiety it's about what happens in the movie anxiety is just a theme it's not a movie that it you know was made to be about anxiety it's a movie that is made to be about this story of blah blah blah, blah. and then like they cut to Ari and Ari goes like oh you know this movie's about anxiety <laughs> and uh, guilt and he's like and like hating your mom yeah and I was like oh, okay deep read obviously like but it, it's crazy like how do you and this is how I felt about not Midsommar but Hereditary where I was like, how did your brain come up with all this? Like, what an interesting little puzzle box. He's kind of like, Ari's kind of like, if you forget about his style and his perversity and his weirdness, he's kind of like the mid-road between Christopher Nolan and Wes Anderson, where it's a lot of style and detail, and it's these puzzle boxes from a visual and screenwriting perspective, more so than even Nolan in some senses, because like, Tenet I watched was was like that's a puzzle box that I'm sure if I rewatch is gonna just be even better. But I 
can't bring myself to even do it. Whereas this, I like want to do it almost immediately. I told you my very first note was, why do I get the impression I'm about to watch Sad Boy Asteroid City? <laughs> Cut to two hours later, we're watching a fucking play with the same characters. And I was like, oh, my God. You know how I knew the second watch was going to sing for me when I started the movie? There was weird animation bullshit, dude. It was literally like, I was like, this is like making fun of Wes Anderson. I started the movie and A24 logo came up and then another logo came up and it was the Mona Wasserman company, um, his mother's company. Oh, cool. They put that on the head logos for the movie. Um, and I was like, oh, oh, oh God, it's happening. Like, yeah. oh, my brain, ow, ow, ow. <laughs> um, <laughs> dude, I have a note that just says, Ari Aster loves grief, lol. <laughs> hey, I will say this. I would I'll I'll damn a person as we learned earlier for not liking Midsommar and Her- Hereditary. I wouldn't blame anyone for not liking this movie. I I get it. I get the criticism. Yeah. Uh, if you didn't walk out of this movie, for example, like as emphatic as I'm speaking about it right now, I don't blame you because I was there too. Um maybe Dan with a nine out of ten, which is not what I thought we were doing here today. Um, <laughs> this is my favorite movie I've watched in a very long time. I I think that this is. I hate to use this statement, but far and away Ari Aster's worst movie. But I I love it, and it's it's going to be a movie that over time, I think people are going to really rally around because it's bonkers. I mean, there there are things in it too that I just. You know, one of my favorite movies that I've talked about on this podcast that I suggested that we watch it at one point and never got around to it is Playtime, the French movie. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love Playtime. Yeah, like that's the kind of shit that I love. It like is butter to my fucking brain. And there was stuff in this movie. And the other thing that's butter to my brain that we have how we've uh, an hour and 32 minutes in haven't mentioned like the most obvious maybe influence for the the vibe and, and style of all this which would be the author oh god <laughs> i'm gonna name 50 of these books <laughs> like the truck kafka yes oh finally finally we both have a brain i'm melt. like who wrote the trial who wrote the trial who wrote the trial? um i love anything that's kafka oh yeah and this movie is one of the most Kafka-esque things I have seen in ever. This could have been a Kafka novel. I mean, yeah. it, it it's this just the vibe of like this deteriorated world that makes no sense that just it keeps reaching out to him and convincing him, trying to convince him that he is guilty of things. It's literally the trial. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's the exact it's the exact thing is that it 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 is just like uh madness without merit. Uh, it's very odd. It's like speaks to deep anxieties that I have um about the world around me and <laughs> about being accused and put upon about things that don't make sense. It's is a classic nightmare for yeah. me. Um, did you ever see there's a Haneke did a Kafka novel. I can't remember the name of it. Andre, please comment. Yeah. Fantastic. Great. Check that out. Um, oh, do you notice there's no flies anymore? Isn't that nice? That is nice. It ended 
probably 12 hours after you left the other time. Dude, this is a movie <laughs> where within the first five minutes, we're introduced by a uh, news report on the television um, <laughs> referencing a character named the Birthday Boy Stab the Man. The Birthday Boy Stab Man. <laughs> you know what? The, uh, very early on in my notes, which I haven't even looked at yet. I'm going to look at it in a minute because I had some funny ones, I think. But um, very early on, especially when with Birthday Boy Stab Man, I was like, this is... Easily going to be Dan's favorite Ari Aster movie because yeah. it is. The, I was like, "This is crank two shit." It's the I, I the vibe I got was very Southland Tales a few times. Oh yeah, there was yeah like a few times where I was like, Ari is in his own fucking lane right now, and it is not cool. And I <laughs> it feels like this is uh, not even to say that this movie was masturbatory. I think is a disservice to yeah. to how hard it's he, funny you say to that, how that, hard he masturbated. I have a note that says, "I believe that in ten years, this movie is going to be viewed as what people are trying to ship Southland Tales as for Richard Kelly." <laughs> yeah, in the, the Ari Aster catalog, had this movie been successful and not a tremendous flop. I would 100% say this is like the dream of Southland Tales fulfilled. Yeah. Making a movie that is a unwieldy long to a point that is offensive to the human brain and just having it be just irrespective of your feelings at all times. Because, you know, and and forever its own vibe. (laughs) I'd, I'd obviously rather sit and watch Hereditary. Hereditary is a great watch, but I think this is like his greatest artistic achievement by Agre- far. Agreed about that. I like, mean, agreed this that is this like is like a real film to chew on. This is like the most hard thought and original thing he's done. Yeah. I'm it, like, it's not based on anything. It doesn't resemble Like what does a person do after this? Like uh, I think I think I read that he's making a movie about a dentist. <laughs> you got to rein it in somehow, man. <laughs> I know. And we'll talk about uh I I'm, I'm going to be shocked if you know, 20 years from now that this, if this doesn't get viewed as like his masterwork. I don't know. Hard to say. Like hereditary is a great movie, but like horror is such a fucking bloated genre that like, I think that the, the drama and effect that hereditary had on me was so much stronger than, than something like this. But the problem is we're comparing things that had this movie for example, been made by a different filmmaker somehow. Um, another sad Jewish person. Um, had that been the case, you would never compare it to Hereditary. But like the violent, <laughs> the violence that is in it is yeah. so like abrupt and yeah. like callous that like I'm like obviously this is the same person. Like, well, th- yeah, dude. I mean, there's so much, so much carryover from both of his first two movies into this movie in the way that the style is done and the way that the horror elements are introduced, the cadavers all look the same. I mean, it's, he's got like this really morbid, gory, bizarre style that he is holding through all of his films, which I love. Like, why not have your movie be, have one foot in, in shocking you? Like, but like, I'm pretty, I'm I'm pretty sure this movie is a comedy. That's how I see it. I I saw it as a comedy, but, but like the horror elements in it, are still more effective than most horror movies that I watch. Well, yeah, and also the, just the feeling of dread yeah. um, is more pervasive than the average movie. I just... I didn't love... And this is uh, some something I guess I could get over with another watch or looking at it further. I didn't really love Patti Lapone in this. Like, And I guess I have Tony Collette kind of hanging over me. Right. 
Um, and this felt like a role that they should have just probably had Tony Collette do. Yeah. <laughs> um, Patty Lapone, I thought, was kind of not getting it. I don't know. Is she Italian? They should have hired a Jew. I don't know. She's definitely Italian. So, like, I don't know why. It just didn't feel very much about her performance that I liked. Like, I know. Every review I said was, like, going, going on about yeah. how crazy she was. I didn't and, think like, she was very good I at thought it. the woman who played the young version of the mother Fantastic. was... Stellar. They should have just put her like an old age makeup. Yeah, or something. I didn't. I thought like Patty Lapone's performance was kind of nothing. I found Patty Lapone flat in her performance yeah. and distracting. Which this is like where. Th- Let me talk about some of the things I don't like about this movie. Somehow we haven't gotten to that yet, but like, yeah, Patty Lapone didn't think that that worked out very well. The ending, maybe I'll have to really get into again the next time. But the from the moment that he kills his mother to the end of the movie the trial the passage on the boat there's a giant dick dan yeah we haven't really gotten to the giant dick i mean my my read on that on first seeing it was i don't like this at all like i don't i don't care what this is symbolic of i get what i think i get what we're doing my f- initial thought was his dad is a fucking dick who cares i mean like, the my- dad is not important the mom used the dad whoever he was to just have Bo it was always about Bo it's not about the dad the dad is just a dick and balls who cares um that was my read on that I mean this could definitely be me throwing you know this is like purely interpretation of like metaphor which is always like a fallacious worthless navel gazy idea but the you know the dick and balls monster is up in this attic that like Bo has this recurring theme and like all he knows is like under no circumstances is he allowed to go in the attic not supposed to go up there I'm not supposed to go up there so in my head I'm like okay the attic is like the last level of like the deep root of his fucking neuroses that like he needs to fucking get to and fucking confront and like yeah it's just like a visualization of like the concept of his father that's been presented to him is one of just being nothing more than a dick and balls. And we see his twin brother up there, which like, I didn't take that to mean he actually had a twin brother. I'm like, this is like, this is like the version of him that should have stood up to his mother and got fucking locked away forever. Yeah. A hundred percent. So I'm just like, okay, yeah, I see what we're doing here. Like, yeah. And it's like, Oh, he confronts that finally and comes back. And what does he do? Immediately falls into the same pattern of like begging his mother for forgiveness, even though he did nothing wrong. Like, it's just like a heartbreaking fucking cycle. The attic, though, for me is part two, like one of several parts of like anticlimactic nature that took me out of the movie. Yeah, it's wild. It just didn't do much for me. This would have been a 10 out of 10 without that scene and without the play. Like, and I don't, there are par- things that I just, like, can't find the purpose in, like, the fucking dude chasing him from Nathan Lane's house, like, jumping through the window in the attic and shooting the dick. Like, I'm just like, I don't really get what that is supposed yeah. to be. I, and it didn't, it didn't do much for me. But, like, so many of these things that felt random initially that I immediately was like, oh, wait, here's what's really happening here. These small things that I'm just like, I can't find a purpose for it but like i'm reticent to be like oh they're throwing random shit into the wall because like everything's so thought out i'm like there there has to be a reason for all of it i just haven't figured it out yet (laughs) yeah Uh, maybe i mean i like i I don't want to be basically like the nathan lane and his wife whole b plot like 
yes, I understand that. Well, like, I first of all, just brief pause. Love that entire B plot. Could have watched it as its own movie for sure. <laughs> Absolutely loved that B plot. Nathan Lane, so good. It, um, it's one of my favorite parts of the movie. So but amazing. Also, one of the only parts of the movie that I have absolutely no idea what its purpose was, besides mm-hmm. to give us a glimpse, like a little taste of the fact that he's being watched and there's something afoot here and that he can fast forward into the future, whatever. Um, I, well, I had uh, I had a few. I mean, dude, there's a lot to unpack in that section. It's not obviously clear in many ways, but I wasn't paying attention to all of the you're being watched st- stuff because I truthfully thought that wasn't going to go anywhere. I thought that all of that for example, the paper sliding under his door saying turn it down, which was one of my favorite uh, set pieces like in any movie I've ever seen. Just him getting yeah. s- slip after slip that, under his door. gave I was, me so much like, anxiety. I was like in tears laughing. I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Like the absurdism of it hit me and I was cracking up watching that. But like I wasn't focusing on any of that. I didn't think that any of that was part of anything and didn't so like during the Nathan Lane stuff I was kind of like dipping a little bit into the symbology and there is a lot of um, stuff in Bo is Afraid and there is a commentary at play that they don't spend a lot of time on but that is about Bo one of his fears of the world and I would assume one of Ari Aster's fears is like getting blamed for shit no is 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 his reaction to modernity i mean a lot of Bo is afraid is about modernity it's about um Bo being raised at a period of time in the 80s and 90s maybe when drugs were being tried on kids and new add medicines were coming out yeah, it said he this, was born in 1975 well this is playing into like the mona wasserman foundation part of the movie where it's like a commentary on urbanization on modernity on um, every piece of technology that he has is like failing in the movie. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the stuff with the family was like, uh, in my mind was like, here, Bo, like you're going to be the surrogate son to a family that lost their child so that you can see what it's like to be raised in 2023's nuclear family. And the, my read of that was like, first we have the horrors of, uh, urbanization and, and cities in the first hour. And the second hour felt to me like, here's the horror at home. Yeah. And um, it's like, this is what you wish you would have had as your childhood. Look this at, is what this you is could have terrifying. Had. Yeah. Like if you would have been placed in a different situation, you would have been a strong soldier and went to war and come back. And like, first of all, I think the guy, and I'm putting a lot of this together right now, but like the guy who uh, is from the Suns platoon, yeah. like that's further example of just like, this is what it would have been like if you were raised out in farmland and like had a doting mother and father, like, does this look better to you? Yeah, like, right. And look, the, look, their daughter's more miserable than you are. And the daughter's like TikToking him and, and forcing him to do drugs and like, I think that yeah, that yeah, is I think you're right. probably, and if you watch Hereditary, there's a scene of peer pressure drug use. I think that there is like probably a time in Ari Aster's life when he knew a bunch of stoners and they offered him weed and made him feel really bad about it. Yeah, right. And then like got him high, pulled down his pants and showed his dick to everyone at school. At like, a fish concert. That is the kind of thing <laughs> I could imagine happened to him that he wanted to do a lot of this commentary. And like, I wouldn't say it's the strongest aspect of the film, but you do get... Uh, th- my read on it is like 
yeah, Nathan Lane um, is revealed to be an employee of Mona Wasserman. And it's just like, he seems like a good dad. He seems like a good person. I would argue that they hired Nathan Lane, not because he is like the right guy for the role, but because because it's comforting to see him on screen. No, it's, <laughs> we all it, love Nathan Lane. I think it's, it's because there's something off putting about having Nathan Lane as a, straight man (laughs) as a straight man like there is a movie called excision where they cast tracy lords as a christian upstanding woman yeah yeah. and she's really abusive to her daughter and it's like sometimes i think they cast people so that you know in your head like something's amiss yeah yeah and i'm not saying being gay is amiss i'm saying that like nathan lane is just like a uh spunky nefarious character in real life and like I think that they wanted to cast him in something so white bread so that it's kind of felt like a character who walked out of happiness. Yeah, so it just feels off. Yeah. Yeah. So it just felt off. And dude, this is a movie with Nathan Lane, Richard Kind, and Vanessa Carlton on the soundtrack. Yeah, for real. Cra- dude, crazy soundtrack, dude, too. <laughs> let's fucking go. So many weird. What was the other song? Uh, you gotta be cool. You gotta be. Yeah. Was that during the sex scene? Yeah. I, um, I think that was the song, right? Uh, was it? I. I actually don't remember that song being in this movie. He turns on like the corniest song fucking imaginable when they go to have sex. Oh no, she, she turns does. it on on Spotify. It wasn't that song. It wasn't that. No, it was something like that. Yeah, some like nineties era like yeah. vibe. Um, Parker Posey, dude, great queen, queen, yeah. indie queen. Of course, Ari wants her in one of his movies. It's perfect casting too. Yeah. Um, I hope he works with all these people again. Um, except for Patty Lapone and um, dude, I will watch Richard Kind do anything. Fraught movie, not his uh, best work, but definitely his smartest work. So that is a good trend. Whereas, like, if you look at other masturbatory uh, sophomore to third efforts that where things start to go weird, oftentimes it's just stylish and boring. This was, like, challenging and very smart and made my head hurt quite a few times. It made me angry and made me feel a lot of emotions. And, you know... It's it's the work of a growing filmmaker. I wouldn't say it's a work of a maestro who's like on autopilot. It's a crazy movie. Oh, yeah. And is he had every, I mean, it said he, he, it he said, had every opportunity to restrain it and had every opportunity to edit it down and said no to all of it. And that makes him a king. But thankfully, what he decided to put in there is worthy of inspection. Um, but I, I think I read that it said he wrote it in like 2013 or something like, well, it's based on Bo, the movie, yeah. the short film that he made, which is basically some of the first hour of the movie, but with the dad from strange thing about the Johnsons, um, oh God. I'd say go run and watch it, but he pulled it, did his best to pull all copies of it as Bo is afraid was being made because he didn't want people walking into it with any exception. Um, oh, I'm sure it'll be on the a 24 disc. Final question um, for me, uh, just as a discussion in terms of this film, is just who who would you say the antagonist of this movie was? Or what? Who or what was the main antagonist of this film? I mean, fucking Bo's own brain. So you'd say Bo's, Bo's brain is your answer. <laughs> I mean, like, it's hard not to say the mother is the antagonist. It's hard not to say that, yeah. 
like but like there is an argument to be made that like the mother is really just there as like the physical manifestation of all his other ineptitudes sure <laughs> um right. yeah i mean it seems like the seems kind of like the antagonist is like society at large that too yeah yeah no i don't, I don't really know beyond that <sighs> Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to just say, like, humanity. Because, I mean, it, it, at the end of the day, it is, like, a fucking journey picture. Like, it's like an odyssey. Like, there's no singular antagonist. Yeah. It's like there's an end goal, and then everything is happening around you. You have various obstacles. Did you hear the quote from Ari from, I think, almost two years ago now? They asked him what the vibe of this movie was. And yeah, he said, like, Jewish Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. It's such a... That is a... That's hilarious. That's a take, for sure. That's hilarious. <laughs> um... Excited to see what he's going to do next, um, but I would personally like him to... It's like Jewish Don Quixote, dude. <laughs> For real. It is kind of like Don Quixote. Um, I would like to see him not do something like this again for a little while i think he needs to rein it in for sure yeah um, i mean this is such a like there is a world in which he world. continues to make stuff like this though which i don't i don't want him to become a charlie kaufman i yeah. wanted him to get this out of his system and i'm not saying i'm not going to be the guy that says he needs to make a horror movie again but dude if you're gonna keep filling your movie with headless bodies head smashes um and gory paint suicides and i mean maybe one more you can make one more it could be weird but make a scary movie yeah again. i mean That'd i felt fun. like this movie was more consistent with those elements throughout compared to midsommar where just like the gore and violence just felt so lopsided and misplaced within the tone to me yeah i agree there, there was something amiss about that for sure. It just felt wholly unnecessary. It like it all felt in service of being like, I have to do this because I'm the guy who made Hereditary. Whereas yeah. this felt more like this is my aesthetic yeah. and I'm making a movie about how everything is terrifying. So like nothing is off limits to how terrifying it can be surrounding you. Sure. Uh yeah, that first hour, Jesus Christ. Could watch it like literally at any Dude, time. Dude, it was amazing. The, <laughs> scene the world the, guy... the world building there was when when all you have is a street a convenience store and an apartment building. Just yeah. incredible world building. Most dystopian fucking shit I've ever seen with two set pieces. When his credit card is rejecting. I was crying. <laughs> I was, that was when I texted you saying this is so stressful. Yeah. And everyone's pouring into his building. Um, I was literally going, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, this Bo poor sweet Joaquin. Bo's afraid. Full send recommendation from me, but I will say it takes some getting used to. And, full uh, ascend for me. Definitely gotta rewatch it. I would say you absolutely need to rewatch this film to to enjoy yourself while watching it and to feel at ease and able to look deeply, deeply into it. Give it a second runaround because this is a good example of me. Uh, originally, I was gonna say. And I thought your position was that you would hate it, of course, and you would think it was just like small brain surrealism and just like for idiots um, and A24 fans. And no, that's I what, that's what that... I thought everything everywhere all at once was. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I think that was incredibly small brain bullshit. Wow. OK, interesting. Yeah, I, I uh, actually agree some with some of that. Um, I was one of the people that walked away from it thinking I, I really like this movie as an action sci-fi movie, but it's attempt to be like um, Cerebral. Any, anything smarter than that. It is embarrassing. Um, 
it being discussed as this revolutionary Oscars darling is what I don't appreciate. I liked it yeah. as like, this is a trippy Chinese A24 uh, sci-fi movie. Enjoy. Totally. I enjoyed watching the movie. If you're like, that was a movie that I liked watching and then reading the discourse of it made me retroactively not like it. A hundred percent agree with that. A hundred percent. And I recently bought that special edition of it because I feel as if I finally come around to just like watching it without any bullshit in my head and just as a popcorn movie. Yeah. Because that's what yeah, it is. Yeah, it is a popcorn it, movie. It's a popcorn movie. But, it, but, but I will say this about it because we're probably never going to do it on the podcast, but um, what makes it special for me isn't what everybody is so over the moon about about it. What makes it so special for me is because it was made for absolutely no money. Yeah. And I, yeah, knew, I sure. knew that walking into it. And from like and, and that is a very important statement. I walked into that movie being like, let's see what somebody can do with like absolutely no money. And yeah. it was better looking and more of a fun action sci-fi movie than most that come out that cost two hundred and eighty million dollars. So that is why I like everything everywhere all at once. But shout out to people named Daniels. Um shout out to the Daniels. Huge fan of yeah. uh their work so far. Um and a uh, huge fan of my boy Ari. I hope uh, <laughs> I hope he got what he wanted out of this movie. I know. I can't imagine the response was what he wanted. I know that somewhere in his brain he knew that this wasn't going to work out well. But I mean, I think the last shot of the movie makes that incredibly clear. Yeah, for sure. And dude, that was the that like dude because like you know first hour I was like holy shit ten out of ten. I'm watching an Ari Aster picture and I'm le I'm pausing at the first hour being like I'm watching a ten out of ten movie. And then, you know, it meandered a little bit and I was like, this is getting weird. What's this is getting weird. We're we're tiptoeing on things that I historically really don't appreciate when filmmakers do. And then that last shot of the audience getting up in indifference and confusion, like I was like, I wanted to stand up and just like applaud. I was like, that is fucking a genius stroke (laughs) of filmmaking right there. Like that is that is the difference between the things that frustrate me about something like Asteroid City Uh where guys like. Look, I'm laying everything out on the table. I believe that, like, this is my artistic fucking destiny. And, like, I have to grapple with whether you like it or not. And that in and of itself makes my artistic process painful. Whereas this is just a a dude being like, this is what I can do and want to do and have to do as an artist. And I don't give a fuck that you're not going to like it. Like, I know that you're (laughs) going to have a problem with this. Yeah. Fuck you. Don't watch it. Um, Walk away, bitch. I also uh, just finally want to say, I keep forgetting to say this over and over again, but my first inclination that I thought I was going to hate this movie was back when they changed the title of it. Um, It was originally and for years was being talked about as Disappointment Boulevard. Yeah. Um, And they put out the first poster and they changed the title to Bo's Afraid. And I was like, that is a terrible title. Couldn't disagree more now that that is the title of the movie that is so fitting and perfect for it. And I feel like if this movie were named Disappointment Boulevard, I'm I, I, I'm not saying I wouldn't like it as much or anything, but I think that would not be as appropriate. <laughs> no, Disappointment Boulevard is like college student watched fucking Mulholland Drive. Like, yeah. Or shit. like or if the movie had been all the first hour and yeah. they literally called it Disappointment Boulevard. I've been like, oh, OK, it's, it's too on the nose. Like, got it. No. Yeah. But like this is a, this is incredibly on the nose. Bo is afraid the but, whole fucking time. But also disappointment isn't. An emotion I felt like explored too much in this yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah. Who was disappointed? His mother. His mother. Yeah. I guess. Okay. I guess. Bo is grappling with feeling like a disappointment. Bo is accused of feeling like a disappointment and guilty. Yeah. 
No. And, and what a weird, unique read to like have him be not guilty of so many of the instances of what was going on in the movie. Because when I originally saw the trailer and you get shipped this idea that he's this pathetic, clawing, like piece of shit, like loser, like it wasn't the feeling of the movie. It felt like more people were putting upon things onto him that were not related to him. Um, yeah, no. And most of his actual flaws were just being flat out ignored. This is what <laughs> happens when you internalize like the criticism of narcissists. Sure. Yeah, I mean it makes sense. Um Yeah, loved it. Weird, bizarre. Absolutely loved it. Did not did not feel like 3 hours. That's crazy. Well, yeah, the play. I my first watch I stopped like right after the play. When he's like, my sons, yeah. my boys. Yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, my God, Ari, dude, why? What are we? Where the fuck are we? Why does he have children? I like, know. I was just like. It's just like usually when we watch movies like this, I'm like, <laughs> if they cut 40 minutes off of this, this could have been like perfect. Yeah. This, I'm like, he needed to shave like 10 minutes off this and I would have been good. Those 10 minutes, I would assume he thinks are very crucial. And I found them to be completely nothing. <laughs> I, and, I, and that scene is one of them. I think that this movie could have benefited from at least a half an hour trim, for sure. And it would have been just incredible. Because, and I hate to say this, the, the real reason why this movie doesn't work narratively, to me still, other than an experiment that I can pick apart, and the reason that I can't give it a, a 9 out of 10, and I have to do what I'm doing here is because the twist we're making it sound like like if you were to listen to this podcast we're making it sound like this was a movie like oh it's all based around this crazy twist like it's not the twist is very kind of after the fact yeah i would have been fine if it didn't happen at all so fucking late into the movie i didn't need any and, explanation and i actually think that as i've said before the twist wasn't what was important to me. It was the marrying of the themes that the twist yeah, yeah. provided sure. that I found important. But the twist itself was not like if you were to draft up like greatest twist and blah, blah, blah. Like, God, no, it nah. didn't work. At, it didn't function like that at all. When they revealed like, oh, Bo's mom faked her own death and they show her body headless in a corpse. That like that was hilarious. That written into a script or if you would have like told me that ahead of time, I would have been like, whoa, like what a crazy Ari moment. It's not played like that. Yeah. It's played very somberly. Yeah, yeah. And dude, I, 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 think, I laughed so hard at that moment when, th they, when it just quickly cuts to the headless body in the coffin. I was crying. Yeah, that was an incredible gag. All the body gags yeah, were incredible. So funny. There were weird, bizarre corpse gags that were really enjoyable in this movie. One was uh, the guy. Uh, there's a guy on top of Bo's building about to commit suicide and someone is filming it with his phone. And the way that Ari cuts to the next scene is they cut to. Oh, and the, and the guy filming with his phone. Bo is like what's going on? Like, what, what, what's he doing? And the guy's like, oh, he's going to kill himself, man. And everybody's like cheering. Yeah. And then they hard cut to that guy's body then decomposed, laying in the street yeah. with its mouth yeah, wide yeah. open. That was a cut that I was like, whoa, yeah. like, bravo, dude. But like, that's like, <laughs> in that moment, I was like, 
the lead up to it, I was like, is this about to be the moment that I completely flipped on Midsommar, which was the scene on the cliffs with the two old people? Yeah. That was the that moment. That had vibes. That was the moment where I completely turned on Midsommar, and I was like, oh, they're doing the same thing. And then they did that hard cut, and I was like, ha, ha. he's doing exactly what I said they should have <laughs> done, what what pissed me off about that scene in Midsommar. Wow. Ari's really in your head, huh? Draining it in, not milking it. Little did I know he was going to milk wild other choices later on in the movie <laughs> yeah but i was like i was yeah. like if this is about to be three hours of p- this pacing i'm yeah. fucking ready to like make popcorn which yeah. i was not ready for it, it it wasn't though and the the momentum of this movie dies very hard and is i would argue on a first watch very hard to recover from and i just by the end of the movie i was absolutely the person in the audience of the of the shot walking away mad yeah i stood up and was just like ugh and rachel was like it this movie f- screwed rachel over i mean <laughs> Ra- rachel loves midsummer and hereditary um and this one fucking absolutely she hated it i mean she i think she was maybe with it for a while but uh the play hit and they wrecked her and i think it must be nice to live life with so few neuroses that you don't get fucking pummeled by this movie (laughs) that's fine and everything but like i do live with all of the neuroses in this movie and my read on it is less than yours so glad you liked it i fucking loved it man i'm not going to be the guy here being like fuck off you're wrong today but i think that historically this take i don't like from you but in the moment now i'm very much enjoying it so thank you for liking this there's no world where i entered this thinking i was going to like it right i think we all know that yeah who wouldn't know that by listening to this podcast but yeah you uh but like i shocked me with this one i get accused of like entering with like preconceived notions of what things are going to be and then like refusing to see them because i think i'm going to hate something but like i thought i was going to hate this and i was fucking on board very quickly does this mean you're going to hate phantom thread oh no wait i'm not prepared for any of this okay i gotta go guys see you next week